good morning and welcome to each of you. It is good to see you again this morning. Um, some of you haven't seen for a while. It's good to have the Raver family here and uh, see the recovery uh, after that fall. It reminded me of a fall I had back in 2004. Some of you remember when I shattered both heels and was out of work for about six months. So, um, yeah, just so good, Lyndon, to see you here this morning and to see what God is doing and has done in your life. Well, this morning I invite you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm not sure if this is going to be just one message or perhaps uh, I may come back to it again. I'm so looking forward. Next Sunday, Fred is going to be ministering to us, and uh, I am looking forward to um, to that time to sit in the pew with you and to uh, put my feet under the table, so to speak, and to have God speak to me through our brother. So I'm looking forward to that to next week. This morning I want to talk to us about building gospel-centered relationships. Building gospel-centered relationships. Now we visited the book of Ephesians a little over a year ago. Some of you may remember that. And yet I found my heart and my mind, I felt directed to go back there again because I'm continuing to see that the one area of our lives that provides the most joy and also the most heartache is our relationships. Whether it's in family, whether it's in marriage, whether it's with parents, with siblings, with children, whether it's co-workers or brothers and sisters in the church. It seems that relationships have the potential to provide the most joy and also the most heartache. And I find often as ministers, we know that and we see that, and sometimes we, we're called in to help people in those situations, but we tend to kind of skirt around that in our teaching. Let's talk about something else. Uh, let's talk about how great God is. Let's talk about um, our blessings in Christ. And while those are very wonderful things to talk about, I think there are times when we need as a body of Christ, talk about relationships. And so this morning is not going to be so much about how to fix a relationship as it is somewhat in prevention. And so there is something here for all of us. Now, a good bit of what I'm going to share, and when we think of relationships, perhaps the, the, the most intimate, obviously, of relationships here on this earth is a marriage relationship. But the things that we're going to be looking at this morning can be applied to other relationships as well. Other relationships that you and I have with people. And I know there are a lot of you here this morning are not married yet, right? I see a group of girls sitting here on the front. But I hope those of you that are single this morning, a few things I want to say specifically to you as you may be looking forward to at some point being married. Because a good marriage is not a gamble. It's not like a roll of the dice and we'll say, oh, maybe I'll have a good marriage, maybe I won't have a good marriage. No, you can have a great marriage 
but you have to follow God's prescription. Well, marriage doesn't really create many new problems. What marriage does is reveals in both the flaws in both spouses. You see, marriage is the arena. Marriage is the, the, the arena where little frustrations magnify or reveal larger issues. Realities like selfishness, insecurity, jealousy, anger, bitterness, pride, insincerity. Those are all potentially major problem areas, whether you're single or whether you're married. But when you're married, marriage has a way of revealing the significance of those problems. So I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 5. I'm going to read some verses here, starting in verse 18. I want you to follow along with me, and then we'll come back to this. Paul writes to the Ephesians, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now notice that verse I just read. Verse 21. Often, this whole area of submission, we're going to talk a bit about that this morning, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God, we, we miss that that is merely the last clause in a whole direction, a whole group of admonitions of this sentence. That's not a sentence in and of itself. That goes with what I just read, starting in verse 18. Submission one to another is a key for every relationship. It's a key for brothers and sisters getting along in a home. It's a key for friends relating well to one another. It's a key for co-workers. It's a key for a, an employer and an employee. It's a key in marriage as well. Continue in verse 22, we have the analogy now that Paul gives. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular 
So love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Back in June, I preached a message here on the blessing of singleness. And I made some statements there about marriage I'm going to repeat somewhat this morning. Uh, many of you perhaps were here for that message. But I think these points are important when we think about marriage. And one of those is that marriage is not an end unto itself. God created marriage to point to a higher reality. Our marriage is, is to point to the relationship of Christ and his church. C.S. Lewis, you may be familiar with some of his writings, he described marriage this way. He said, marriage is like a ray of sunshine. And you know, in the spring when we've had cold weather and then we get one of those first days where you really feel the warmth and, and, and you find a place where the sun is shining and you step in that ray of sunshine. And it feels so good. Well, the sun has a million, millions of rays. But that ray that we enjoy should never replace our focus on the source. The sun. Well, the second statement about marriage I want to make is that marriage is not the ultimate relationship. And in our culture today, it's often portrayed that way. Young people have this idea, if I can just get married, then everything will be okay. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship for you and me. It's the sign of a higher reality, our relationship with Christ. Christ and he alone is the source of joy and completeness. The love we were created for is not the love of another person. Did you hear what I said? The love that you and I were created for is not for the love of another person. We were created to receive and experience the love of God. Well, the third statement I made that day was that the church is the ultimate eternal family. According to the scriptures, relationships in Christ are more permanent and more precious than earthly relationships. And the last is that marriage is a sign and a foretaste of the future kingdom of God. The fellowship of Jesus Christ with his bride, the church, in all of eternity. Marriage is to be a symbol of that future reality. Now, now, I'm not here this morning to dismiss the importance of symbols. Symbols are important. I'm not here to downplay marriage, because marriage is a wonderful institution. Marriage is one of the best of God's gifts to mankind. And it's indispensable in the part of His created order. But listen, and this is crucial. Just as we find with other symbols in, in Scripture... The symbol of communion, the Lord's Supper. The symbol of baptism. Uh, the symbol of feet washing. The symbol of anointing with oil. The symbol of a head covering. It, the same with all of those. Life goes wrong when we make the symbol the ultimate. 
That's when life goes wrong. When we make the symbol of a reality our ultimate. And the same thing can happen with marriage. You see, one of the most widely accepted myths in our culture today, and it's actually one of the most widely worshipped false gods, is that of romantic love. You know, most Hollywood entertainment people are really relationship junkies. They clearly demonstrate the high that a person can get from a relationship. And then psychologists tell us that infatuation has a life of about 18 months. And what happens so often is they clearly demonstrate that they come off of that high and then just like an addiction to another drug, they need another fix. And so they abandon that relationship and they move to another. We see that over and over again. Listen, you and I were created to be completed by the love of Christ alone. That is the only place your heart will find completeness with love. Lonely, insecure, unhappy, single people become lonely, insecure, unhappy, married people. Problems like loneliness, insecurity, and unhappiness are not cured by another human's companionship. Those problems are only cured by the love of Christ. And so many young people today in singles think, if I just find the perfect her, I just find the perfect him, then I'm going to feel, I'm not going to be unhappy, I'm not going to be insecure, I'm not going to be lonely. Gary Thomas, who has written a lot about marriage, had this to say, marriage doesn't solve emptiness, it exposes it. If someone can't live without you, he or she will never be happy living with you. And so oftentimes, singles hear that. I can't live without you. You see, you and I were not designed to meet the deep soul needs of another human being. And so often people enter marriage with that fallacy. And so we ought to have a, 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 pay, a sign across our forehead at marriage. <laughs> I cannot meet your deep needs of your soul. No man can meet the deep soul needs of a woman. No woman can meet the deep soul needs of a man. Those can only be met by Christ. And life goes wrong when something God intended to point us to Him starts to compete with our relationship with him. You see, if you are to marry, marry someone who is happy in the relationship with the Lord. That's who you want to look for, you single people. If you're ever to marry, marry someone who is happy in their relationship with the Lord. 
Not someone that is unhappy and is trying to convince you that if you will marry me, you can make me happy. True happiness, true joy is found in your relationship with Christ. You know, and, and perhaps we have said this in, in romantic moments with our spouse, those of us who are married, perhaps have said this, you know, you complete me. But really, we never should say that in the ultimate sense. Because no husband can compete, you wives. No wife could compete, complete you as a husband. Christ and his church are what completes you. And a gift from God, no matter how good, should never replace in your and my heart that for which it points to. So is it possible this morning that marriage is an idol to you? Let me ask two questions. It might help us identify if that might be the case. Could you be single your whole life and not feel devastated? Or do you feel like you could never be happy without marriage and life would hardly be worth living? If your answer to either of those is, is yes, if you feel like you couldn't be single your whole life without feeling devastated. Or if you feel like you could never be happy without marriage, then I would suggest to you that marriage is an idol. You see, singleness is not an inferior state to marriage. Both have real privileges, but neither is ultimate. The Apostle Paul would say, I wish you all were as I was. But singleness is not ultimate to marriage. And often we've portrayed it that way. Nor is marriage ultimate to singleness. Both of those situations are momentary. They're only for this life. And the present form of this life is going to pass away. And that includes marriage. And that includes biological families. Both of those will give way to what is permanent. What is permanent? Our relationship with Christ and our relationship with the church. Those are eternal. So, a word of admonition to singles, and then I'm going to move on to start telling us as husband and wives. Don't squander your season of singleness by coveting marriage. Don't squander it. The Apostle Paul says singleness in Christ is a gift. So as you, as you grow and mature as a young adult, you need to be asking yourself, do I have the gift of singleness? And if so, embrace it. Embrace it and live the life of a single disciple in Christ with purpose and vigor. I mentioned that in, in that message, singles can be fathers and mothers of people. Remember, in God's family, God's family is not built by propagation through sexual intercourse. God's family is built through propagation of people coming to faith in Christ. 
And God promises to singles in Christ who are faithful to him blessings greater than sons and daughters. So if you have the gift of singleness, embrace it. And we don't do a good job of that in our churches, do we? I, I read of one young man who said, well, he was gotten in his 20s or 30s, I guess his 30s, and, and at every wedding, these ladies would come up to him and say, uh, Rob, you're next. And he really wasn't looking to get married. And he didn't know how to stop that till he came up with the idea at one of the next funerals. When those ladies came through, he said, uh, Sister Ann, you're next. And he kind of stopped that. But we tend so many times to not encourage and support singleness. On the other hand, if you find yourself longing for companionship, longing for the, the intimacy of marriage, then I think you need to ask yourself, is it time? Is it time? Now, a word of caution. Sometimes when we feel like it's time, it's not time. Sometimes we have healing that needs to happen in our lives from things that have happened. Sometimes we may be in the middle of a special call of ministry. Sometimes the right person just isn't there. Sometimes there may be some other circumstance. But when you sense that this is the time, my encouragement is just move on it. The scripture, different places, talks about us being fully persuaded in our own mind. And I think about our marital state, whether we have the gift of singleness or whether we feel called to marriage, we need to be fully convinced in our own mind. And then pray and allow God to direct us in that. You see, dating is a road that leads to marriage. Now, young people, listen to this. Dating is a road that leads to marriage. And if you are not interested in marriage, don't travel that road. When it's time to wait on God, wait. But when it's time to act, I say go boldly throughout the land. Well, one more newsflash, you singles. Listen, there is no perfect person. When you think you found the perfect person, ask to see their hands and see if there are nail scars. Because if there aren't nail scars in their hands, they are not the perfect person. And what you're seeing is merely an illusion that's going to pass away in 18 months or less. You see, the person you are so into was bad enough that Jesus had to die for them to fix their problem. So is it any wonder if they're that flawed that if you marry them, there are going to be some irritations? <laughs> of course there are going to be. So here's the point. 
if we idolize marriage, we'll be consumed with trying to find the perfect person. And we'll be terrified that we might possibly marry the wrong person. And then after we're married, we'll be scared, we'll be questioned, did I marry the wrong person? Listen, you always marry the wrong person. Because both you and they are going to change. Okay? Gert is not the person I married 37 years ago. I'm not the man she married 37 years ago. And the person you marry will not be the same even one to two years after you marry. But understand, it is not compatibility that makes for a happy marriage. It's grace that makes for a happy marriage. The point of marriage is not to make you happy by you finding the perfect person. The point of marriage is to make you holy by teaching you to love someone like Jesus loves. That's the point of marriage. The point of marriage is to learn to wash the feet of another sinner. Someone who disappoints you at times. Someone who sins against you at times. Someone who may even betray you at times. Well, one final note to singles. Never settle for less than God's prescription. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, that we are to only marry in the Lord. Find someone who is happy in their relationship with Christ. Because the person you marry has the greatest potential to influence your relationship with God and the rest of your life than anyone else. Than parents, than siblings, than your best friends. The person you marry. Well, verse 22, if you still have your Bible open, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, has, has to be one of the most unpopular verses in the Bible. And it's mainly because it's been so misunderstood and it's been so misused to support the subjugation of women. And it's so often been lifted out of its context. And I, I pointed you the context that this is in submitting ourselves one to another. Well, a couple comments I want to make this morning about that verse. First is, what is the first word in verse 22? Someone tell me. What's the first word in verse 22? Wives. Who is Paul talking to? Wives. Not husbands. Now, now we husbands, we get our verse down a little bit further. But this verse is to wives. If God had intended for us as husbands to use this verse as a weapon with our wives, he would address it to us. This verse is directed to wives. So we need to, we husband, we need to let this for our wives, okay? We'll get our verse in a little bit. This is for wives. We don't want wives messing with our verse. We shouldn't mess with their verse. This is their verse. And don't forget the previous verse 21, where 
Paul says to every follower, we're to submit ourselves out of reverence for Christ. You see, we're all to submit ourselves to one another. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives. And then verse 22 is the special application of that principle for wives to submit to their husbands. Well, if you consider down in verse 25, we find that now, now, husbands, this is our verse. 25. And you wives, let us have our verse. Okay? This is not for you to use as a weapon against your husband. This is your husband's verse. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Notice both wives and husbands are to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Not out of reverence to one another. And that is such a key. Because the application of these scriptures are to teach us what it means to, be, to love God and be loved by God. In Philippians 2, and I won't take time to go there, but you're familiar with that passage where it talks about how Jesus humbled himself, did not consider himself robber to be equal with God, but laid aside all that he had. Listen, you wives, was Jesus equal to God? Yes, he was equal with God. Of course he was. But he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father. And that was not an assault on Jesus' dignity. And it did not imply in any way that Jesus was inferior to the Father. He was fully equal to God. If it wasn't an assault on Jesus' dignity to submit to the Father, neither is it an assault on your dignity as a wife to submit to your husband. I mean, quite the contrary. It makes you more like Christ. If it was not below Jesus to voluntarily submit to another to whom he was equal, it's not below you either. And you husbands... Philippians says that Jesus came and gave himself for us. And that's what we are called to do in submitting to our wife. Jesus laid aside his glory. He laid aside his comfort. He didn't leverage his power for his own benefit, but for us. You see, when we have the position of head in our family... It's only natural for us to want to use it for ourselves. We want to press for our rights as, as the head and demand them. But Jesus had all those things, and he laid them aside. He emptied himself, Paul says, and took the form of a servant. Now, notice, you have to take the form of a servant. Normally, servanthood is a, is, is a sign. You're placed in servanthood. But we as husbands aren't placed in servanthood. We have to deliberately take that position. We have to deliberately choose to serve. We're not placed in that role. We don't take that form 
Jesus didn't come and compromise his interests to get along with us and our interests. He came to meet our interests. And that's the real key for us as husbands. Being a servant leader is not about compromising our interests with our wives' interests. We need to seek to come to meet her interests. Jesus came to meet our interests. Our need of forgiveness, which could only be offered by the shedding of his blood. Jesus took the low road, and God gave him the high road. He exalted him, gave him a place in the name above every name. And that's an important principle for us, all of us, husbands and wives, to remember. God takes the responsibility to exalt those who humble themselves. That's God's responsibility. He ensures us that the way up is the way down. You might remember in Mark 10 when James and John wanted a favor from Jesus. You know, they wanted to be vice president and secretary of state. You know, we'll be on each side of you when you come in your kingdom. I mean, after all, we left everything to follow you. You know, we, we've been here the whole time. We bought in when the stock price was low. And, and now that you're about to have your kingdom, we ought to share in the, the benefit. And that request, I guess, perhaps you might say was natural. That's how people, Jesus said, outside the kingdom of God think. Whoever would be great among you, though, Jesus said, will be your servant. And that's a revolutionary view of power. That's a revolutionary view. That we would think that those of us who have power would use it to serve. I mean, why you have power if you don't get to benefit you? And yet that is not why it is given to us. You remember after the Last Supper, Jesus had his last meal with his disciples, and then he washed their feet, dirty feet, because they were dirty from their walking. Humiliating work, the work of a servant. Washing feet, and in a few hours, we're going to carry those disciples away from him as they deserted him in the garden. In places where we are Lord where we are the head, where we are teacher, where we are the employer, we are called to use that position to serve, not to demand to be served. And as husbands, we are to use whatever power we have to serve our wives. And wives, whatever power they have, they are called to use that to submit to their husbands. Now, right now, you may be saying, but my husband doesn't deserve that. Or my wife does not deserve that. Let me ask you, who of the disciples deserved to have Jesus wash their feet? Peter? Thomas? Judas? Matthew? You see, it's not about deserving. Listen, if there's one thing I can hope we can understand this morning... When it comes to submitting, and when it comes to serving, wives submitting, husbands serving, we don't do that out of reverence for our spouse. Because we're always going to find reasons why Gert doesn't deserve that. Or Gert said Dave doesn't merit that. 
We do that out of reverence for Christ. Have you ever felt so close to someone, so you just reverence, you want to say reverence, right, right word, but, but you so appreciated someone that, that they're not here anymore, but because of how you appreciated them, you would do most anything for their children. You ever had that feeling? I knew your father, or I knew your mother. So, yeah, I will do it because husbands, we give of ourselves for our wives out of reverence to Christ. Not out of reverence to our wives. Now, it's great when it comes so naturally today. I would do anything for you, darling. But some days that's not the reason we serve our wives. And there are some days when you wives might say, Mate, today I would, what, what, can, what can I do? But some days you're going to say, you know, he's not really a, the leader he ought to be today. That's when you submit to him out of reverence for Christ. It's a way for us to declare that we are so grateful for God's grace and forgiveness that we will gladly serve as a way of honoring him. Well, how do we do that? Let me wrap up with a practical example that I came across in preparing this last week. And I'm going to encourage you between now and and Fred's preaching next week. So in the next two weeks, I'm going to give you an assignment. What if we would, in our relationships, think of all the relationships we talked about this morning. Friends? Siblings, brothers and sisters, employer, employee, co-workers, and certainly in marriage. What if we would at least one time a day say to that other person, what can I do to serve you? What can I do to serve you? And that's a real simple question. Now, some of us might be scared to ask that question. (laughs) We'd be scared what the person might say. But I would encourage all of us to start saying that question. And, and, And right now, you know that feeling you're getting? That emotion? It's called fear. Um, Welcome to the family of God. There's always some fear in obeying Scripture. Fear is always, there's always a bit of fear with our faith. Welcome to that. You see, the primary failure of us as husbands is to be complacent about our responsibilities when it comes to other people. And a servant leader means that we take initiative for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of ourselves. We, we, we usually are enthusiastic about our hobbies, our interests, where we want to go on vacation, what we want to do. We're enthusiastic about that. But when it comes to taking initiative for the benefit of others, our wife and our children, rather than just putting them on autopilot and say, I'm the leader, follow me. We're all going to have a good time. 
That's not servant leadership. You see, spiritual headship is not licensed to do whatever you want. Spiritual headship is the empowerment to do what we should. That's what spiritual headship is. And in many situations in our marriages, we, we need to be asking our wives that question. And I know you wives are thinking, if I ask my husband that, what can I do to serve you? You know what he's going to say? He's going to say nothing. <laughs> That's okay. At least he knows then that you have some understanding and care about the burdens he's carrying. Okay? Many are the wives who struggle with that the willingness to serve because they mistakenly think, I will submit to my husband, I will serve him when he deserves it, when he is a man I can respect. He's not the spiritual leader, he's lazy, he's hard to respect. Remember, a wife's submission and service to her husband is not out of reverence for her husband. It's out of reverence to Christ. And a husband's love for his wife and willingness to, to give of himself and make sacrifices and put her desires and needs ahead of his own is not out of reverence for her primarily. It's out of reverence for Christ. When we respond to our spouses that way, we can help them become the wife, become the husband that we've always believed they could be. There's power in that encouragement. You teenagers, what would happen if you went to your parents this week and said, what's one thing I could do to serve you? I mean, maybe they would, maybe they would faint. <laughs> Imagine if those of you who have an employer, if you went to him and said, um, what's, what's something I could do to serve you? I remember as a, as a boss, if you went to your employees and said to them, what's one thing I could do to serve you? I think that's such a powerful question. So in the next two weeks, my assignment is that at least one time a day, say that in one of your relationships. How could I, what can I do to serve you? That's going to be my challenge for us this morning. Well, I'm convinced that the quality of your and my relationships with other people is highly indicative of the quality of our Christian relationship with Christ. It does affect that. They are not separated. Our vertical relationship affects horizontal and vice versa. And the key to that, Paul says is submitting one to another. How can I serve you? Let's pray. Father, may we learn from the mind of Christ to humble ourselves. May we learn from the mind of Christ to serve. May your spirit guide us and empower us to put that to practice in our relationships. For it's in Christ's name we pray.